Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 10 today. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Do you come this morning with a nagging sense of guilt? Maybe you know that experience. A sense that you're off, that you're wrong. Maybe it's something that you've done a long time ago and you carry it with you and it nags you. That particular place around those particular people. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is church that place for you? Are church people those people for you? Is the God of the Bible the last person you were comfortable being around? For when you were around him, you have before him a nagging sense of guilt. Well, is this the the message that God would send us out with on Sundays and today? Oh, I think not. If you're in Christ, let's read together the first 18 verses of chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, But a body you have prepared for me, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, he then added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
Now, there's a word in this reading that makes us uncomfortable. It's that word perfect. The old sacrifices couldn't make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2, or verse 1, excuse me. Uh, Fair enough. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all the time those who are being sanctified. I don't like saying I'm perfect. I I haven't heard any of you say that. I would think it's, it's a sign of a healthy church that the church members don't run around saying, I'm perfect. Hey, you should be perfect. It's interesting, though, that this book uses this language of perfection a good bit. Maybe it's not using it the way we typically use it. I mean, if Jesus says he was made perfect, chapter 2, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should should, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was made perfect. Chapter 5, in being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And in chapter 7, Law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect. He has been made perfect forever. What is this being made perfect of Jesus? We're uncomfortable with that, because wasn't he just perfect? Well, it can't refer to moral perfection, because Jesus didn't arrive sinning and then got better and stopped sinning so that he was perfect and so he could save us. That's not it, because he was tempted in every way we are tempted, yet without sin. He had a sinless life. It doesn't have to do with his humanity, that he, he came and he wasn't wholly human, but then he was perfected. He was made wholly human so that then he could represent us as a high priest, as a sacrifice. Now, that's not it. For, as we've worked through various texts, he came and was himself wholly human, true humanity, and holy God at the same time. No, these verses we've read about Jesus being made perfect, we could say, refer to his vocation as a high priest. If we think about it, When Jesus came, why did he have to live so long and why did he have to do so much if if he was already entirely qualified to save us on day one, why didn't he get it over with? Well, it's because there was a work to complete. There was obedience to offer and there was suffering to give on account of sin. And it was through his sufferings, plural, throughout the course of his life and his offering of obedience in the face of those sufferings, that Jesus was qualified to save us as a high priest. He was made ready for the job. He had the gear and the the equipment. He'd gone through the trainings. I might not be willing to commit to that imagery, but you get the idea. He was made qualified to save us as a high priest. It's vocational, not moral, and doesn't have to do with his humanity. Oh, so we solved that little puzzle right there. 
Jesus was perfectly human and he was perfect without sin, but, but when the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus being made perfect, he's talking about Jesus being qualified to save us through the course of his life and the obedience that he offered in the face of suffering. Okay, so then what is this talk of us being perfected? I mean, that's a little different than, than what we'd expect as well. This is mentioned, this language is used of us several times throughout the book, a few other instances in Hebrews 11. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. In chapter 12, and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He refers to us again. Well, maybe this doesn't have to do with being without sin and therefore being acceptable to God, or even being a Christian, being saved and therefore being, being made someone who no longer ever sins. Okay, so don't go around saying I'm perfect if that's what you mean. You're without sin. We have Bible verses on that. 1 John chapter 1. Anyone who says he's without sin, well, we're fooling ourselves and we're deceiving, attempting to deceive God. We're calling him a liar. No, no. So we have sin. We arrive here with sin. We're going to leave here as sinners. But there is a sense in which we should say we have been made perfect. And by the way, that's one being acted on. We don't make ourselves perfect. We are made perfect. And and that the author keeps repeating this in this book tells us that, that whatever he means by it is important for us. If he wants us to hold fast to Jesus and not to drift, to pay more close attention to our great salvation, this has something to do with that. There's some power in understanding what it means that we've been perfected, some power for us in persevering in the face of hardship and trouble in the Christian life. And so it's worth our reflection and meditation this morning. Jesus was perfectly ours so that we could be perfectly his. That is how I'll relate Jesus' being made perfect to our being perfected by Jesus. He was perfectly ours, made perfectly ours, made perfect for us, that we might be perfectly His, made perfect for Him. The passage divides a couple ways. Verses 1 through 4, we have reflection on the Old Covenant building on a lot of the work we've done in the weeks in the past. Verses 5 through 10, a quote from Psalm 40 on the lips of Jesus. And then verses 11 through the end of the section, the argument proceeds, including a quote from Jeremiah 31 on the lips of the Holy Spirit. So we have... Something the law says, something that Christ has said when he came, and something the Holy Spirit says to us today. Let's begin with what the law says. What the law says. The law, that is, that package of instruction and teaching the word of God through Moses to the people of Israel 
That law which is a shadow of the good things to come. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices continually offered every year, make perfect those who, who draw near. What does the law say? Well, in the first place, it says, stay away. That's what it said to the people. Stay away. God is holy and you are are sinful. When Israel received the law through Moses, their mediator, Moses could go up, but they were to stay away from the mountain. There was a perimeter set up, come too close, and you could die. These were words coming to the people from the fire, and there was cloud and smoke, and the mountain shook, representing the holiness of God. And, and, and indicating that you should stay away for fear of your life, though Moses was to go up. Even the tent itself, Moses got instructions for this tent we've been talking about over these weeks. Even the tent itself had levels of access, and not everyone could go all the way in. One person once a year could. And there was this outer section, and priests could go in there, there was a courtyard, and a place where Gentiles could go. In a way, the whole structure of the tent was indicating where you go, and most of us couldn't go very far. Stay away, lest you be struck down. Remember the two that went in, Nadab and Abihu, with the wrong kind of fire and the wrong kind of plan, not according to God's very specific instructions for priests, and they were consumed. So stay away is one thing that the law said. It's not all it said. It also said, come. On that very mountain where Moses received the law, he received it as a mediator between God and the people. And so, in a way, through Moses, the people met with God. And what God was giving to Moses, Moses was to give to the people. So God was coming to the people. The the Lord was way higher than the mountain, but he had come down to speak with Moses. This is God coming to us. And even the tent itself, while yes, there were levels of access, and for most it was, you could look at it, stay, a message of staying away from another angle, it was an invitation in through representatives, through priests, and through a high priest. And again, the Lord is in the heavens, but he had come down to dwell among his people in this tent. So the message isn't just stay away, it's also at the same time Come. It isn't just God is holy and you're sinful, but you are sinful and I am merciful. Draw near to me. And we remember the whole old covenant begins with grace, where the Lord delivers his people through the Red Sea from bondage in Egypt. And he gives them his law and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He says it over and over again because he wants them to know where they came from. They came from him. He gave them birth. He went and got them. He purchased them. They are his. Stay away. But come. A third thing the law says. Come back next year. Says, come back next year. At the heart of the old covenant law was the sacrificial system, the way that the people through blood were able to meet with God. 
At the heart of that sacrificial system was this, this one day, the day of atonement. It was in the middle of their life. <clears throat> and on that day of atonement, one goat, the sins of the people would be confessed over the one goat and the goat would be sent out into the wilderness representing the taking of the sins of the people far away. And the other goat would go in to the holy place, the most holy place, representing the people. And, and through the representative access of that animal, access to God. It's if they would go all the way into God. He isn't just a God who takes our sins away, but he brings us all the way to, to him. So it pictured this relationship we were to have, whereby God takes away our sins and he gives us himself. But we remember it's just a shadow, and that's a really great word for the whole system, isn't it? It's a great word for the whole system because the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sins. That's silly. In fact, the fact that you have to keep repeating them betrays a truth that this isn't, this isn't God's best idea. It's the right idea for the moment, but it's actually teaching us and training us to look for a sacrifice that would be once for all. The law says, stay away. It says, come into relationship. It says, it says, come back next year. And so they came and they left. And then they came and they left. But into that most holy place, only the high priest went once a year. So rarely, but then on repeat as well. He went every single year. And just imagine you go home and it's two months later and you remember those great times at Jerusalem with your family and the people of God and the singing and the shouting and the, and the, and the forgiveness of sins as, your, as the sins of the people were laid on the goat. And, and your sins were forgiven and you felt freedom. You'd accessed to God. And yet, when you remember those memories, you think, oh, it's been two months. So a lot of sin has gone on in the last two months. Maybe a good bit of arguing on the way home even from the temple. We have short drives on our way home and there's enough time to get in an argument with the person you love the most. Well, after a couple months or the journey home, no doubt there were all kinds of sins and burdens on the hearts and the minds of the people. You think two months, it's a long time. Well, there's 10 more months to go until the next day of atonement. So the old covenant sacrificial system reminded the people that they were sinners and of their sins, when their sins were mentioned and their names were given and their sins were paid for provisionally in the slaughter of an animal. But they were also reminded of sin in their, in their forgiveness of sins because even the occasion of being forgiven meant the clock was starting again. What a brutal system in a way. A shadow is the right word. You poke at a shadow and you don't have anything. You can, hit, you can put a shadow on top of a shadow. Not really possible. Maybe with different lights you could. But you can multiply shadows. You never actually get anything for it. You don't get any substance for shadows. The old system, it was a shadow. And these readers were tempted to go back because they actually kind of liked it. it didn't feel like a shadow. It felt like things you could smell, incense, and things you could touch, priests and sacrifices and smells, the blood and all of that. That all seemed better than the invisible Jesus who's costing them so much. Oh, but it's just a shadow. 
You think about not liking your sins being repeated. No one likes a, a constant reminder. Some of us need constant reminders of some things. A constant reminders of your sins? Mm-mm. How about constant reminders of your sins before the person you committed the sins against? Oh, that's worse. This would be the Day of Atonement, a constant reminder of your sins before the Lord. A wonderful occasion, but in another sense, verse 3, in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For these sacrifices couldn't really take them away. And so they must have hoped for more. They came and they left. They came and they left. And this system, although built to deal with sin, nevertheless left them with a nagging sense of guilt. A nagging sense of guilt. Well, that's what the law said. Stay away, come, and hey, come again next year, and we'll do this forever. Now, what Christ came to say, verses 5 through, five through 10 There is an answer for this, and we, of course, having been in the book of Hebrews, know where this is going. Jesus is the answer. But as we've also learned in the book of Hebrews, apparently we need to understand how he's the answer and how it works. Because understanding how Jesus is the answer, how his blood takes care of our sins, what all that was last week about the fire pot walking through the split pieces of animals, all of that. Understanding how it is that Jesus saves is crucial for holding on to the Jesus who saves. It's strength for your assurance that he can save to understand how he does. So now, starting in verse 5, we have an Old Testament quotation, and then we have our author's interpretation. Sacrifice. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. And burnt offerings and and sin offerings you have not taken no pleasure. But I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. And my purpose in the next few minutes is to make that quote really good news to you. And to make it make sense to you at at every level in which it is supposed to make, make sense. It's a quote from Psalm 40, in the lips of David, King David, Israel's king. Jesus, to my knowledge, is not quoted as having quoted from Psalm 40 in the Gospels. Presumably he said this. But how is it that this author can quote Jesus when he came into the world at his incarnation and then exactly quote David? Is it like that new chat AI thing that just got a little something wrong? Well, I mean, Jesus, not David. So let's explore this together. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 40. Excuse me, Psalm 40. Sorry, Mark Sinners. I won't do that again. Psalm 40. 
If this quote is a ground, a foundation on which the author of Hebrews is going to convince you that you've been perfected, that you don't need to walk around with a nagging sense of guilt, then we ought to want to know how that is the case. Our goal in working through Hebrews is so that to do it in such a way that we couldn't throw away a paragraph and have the same book. We need all of it and want to sense our need for, for all of it. I'll read the first ten verses, and then I'll talk a bit at us. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me, and He heard my cry, and He drew me up from the pit of destruction, a miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within is within my heart. He recounts some of his distress, even in verse 12, for evils have encompassed me beyond number, and my iniquities, my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They, my sins, are more than the hairs of my head and my heart. It fails me. So let me outline a few things here. In the first place, this is a psalm of lament, a psalm of David. And in verse 1 through 5, he recounts how the Lord has been faithful to save him from dire circumstances in the past. You've set my foot upon a rock. You've done it. You've taken care of me, Lord. In verses 6 through 10, he appeals to the Lord to save him again, to rescue him. So verses 6 through 8, which is where our author draws his quotation, what is its function? On verses 6 through 8, he gives the Lord a reason why the Lord should save him. Not only has he done it in the past, but David promises to obey the Lord from his heart, to offer obedience to the Lord. And he acknowledges to the Lord that the Lord's purpose was never just to receive Bulls and offerings like he needs them, like we read about in Psalm 50 this morning together. He doesn't eat those things. He doesn't need them from us. All along through that system, what he wants is the heart, and those sacrifices teach the people about what is owed to God. And it is owed to God. It's, It's the law, and that's why in Hebrews 10, there's that parenthetical statement offered according to the law. His point is, is they were good. They were intended by God, and it was obedience to offer them. But the Lord was never after mere offerings. He was after the heart of his people. He wants his people. Their obedience and their allegiance and their 
their love. And that's the role that verses 6 through 8 functions here. He says, Lord, I know you don't desire these offerings and you desire my obedience and I'll render that to you. Save me. Now, there's some problems with this psalm that may be on our minds as we think about the author of Hebrews lifting it and putting it on the lips on the lips of Jesus. In the first place, this is about David's situation. It's not about the Messiah to come. So how is it Jesus says this? In the second place, David mentions in this very psalm that he sins. And he can't even count the number of his sins. So how does that work? In the third place, there's even a misquote here, it seems. Verse 6, you have given me an open ear. But then the author of Hebrews will say, you've given me a body. And then he'll use that as an argument for or from Jesus' incarnation. The son's incarnation is man. So there's a number of things going on. Well, this is a good test case for how the New Testament authors are reading the Old Testament. And it's not just a, a, a sort of a picky theologian's interest here. It's apparently for every Christian to get this. And so over the years and the weeks, we do this kind of work as a church. And I hope that your instincts are growing. And this is another occasion in which we want to do that together. You can turn with me back to the book of Hebrews. And I'll do a little splaining. A reminder about how prophecy works, how the Old Covenant, how the Old Testament works as a prophetic writing. There's direct prophecy, and this is the kind that's all obvious to us, where a direct promise is made that has a direct and maybe single fulfillment in the future. And we're familiar with those. There's also indirect prophecy. In fact, the whole Old Testament is prophetic leading forward with expectation, not always so directly, but nevertheless clearly. In this fulfillment of David's words in Psalm 40 is an example of that kind of indirect prophecy and fulfillment, what we call typological fulfillment. There was a type or a pattern established in David's life that was on repeat. There was a an expectation, something typical, if you will, that escalated and is fulfilled in Jesus. And the readers could pick up on that, and the author was counting on them, tracking with him when he cited Psalm 40. And I want to help us to get there, or at least a little bit closer, with them. Jesus came into the world and said this, and this author could put this on the lips of Jesus... Because David was the recipient of a covenant with the Lord, we call the Davidic covenant. Several weeks ago, Brad Baum came and preached on that one, one of the most important chapters of the Bible. A point through which all of the promises and strands of the Bible flow, and out from which all of the fulfillment comes. David, and all of David's prayers, including that, and Israel in reading David's prayers, and the editor of the Psalter, 
the book of Psalms, who put David's prayers in there and where he put them, put them there with the understanding that David was the recipient of this covenant, the Davidic covenant, and that all of God's promises for humanity and his people were routed through David. Jesus could quote this, and this could be put on the lips of Jesus, because that Davidic covenant entailed the coming of a future Davidic son. A son who would be greater than David, who sinned in many even egregious ways. But a son greater than David, from David would come, who would be glorious, who would be righteous in his rule, who would rule from shore to shore the whole earth, and who would rule forever. That's the greater son of David to come. He would be without sin. Jesus could pray this, say this, and this could be put on the lips of Jesus because Jesus is that greater son of David. Greater is an important word. Everything about David that reflected properly that future king to come from his line is seen in Jesus, but in even a greater way. And everything about David that was wrong and upside down and sinful, well, Jesus is not like that. So that's why it's no problem that there's a reference to his sin here. Sometimes we approach these Old Testament quotes almost like if you've done computer code, like call up Psalm 40, plug it in here. It doesn't quite work like that. Oh, wait, there's a bug. There's, there's sin in there, but Jesus isn't sinful. I'm confused. Think of this more like as the Bible is, literature, where there's development and layers and escalation and patterns. So that by the time Jesus takes it on its lips, we say, aha, Jesus is praying, it's concerning his incarnation, that he has come not to offer sacrifices, but to offer perfect obedience, better than David could have, better than David knew he could have. Oh, but his greater son to come would. And David's best intentions are fulfilled in Jesus' actual perfection of obedience. Jesus is that greater son of David. Like David in every good way and better than David in every way that David was inadequate. And that's why Jesus can take this on his lips. And that's why the author can put it on his lips. And he offers an interpretation now. Look at verse 10, 8. It, so he's quoted it now. Let me explain. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, sin offerings. Seems to be emphasizing the, the various kinds of offerings and how often they had to be offered. These are offered according to the law. They're not bad. They were insufficient. Verse 9. Then after saying that, he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. Now, his interpretation. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. In other words, if the system was inherently deficient and God's purpose never was to delight and take pleasure in and to the extent that was needed for our fellowship, these sacrifices, then surely they were temporary. 
But that thing that God always wanted, our perfect obedience and our wholehearted obedience, that, that's forever. And the greater son of David to come would put away that system which didn't work and he would offer himself perfect obedience. In verse 10, and by that will, now here's the, the preacher's application, and by that will, we have been sanctified made complete, made perfect, through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. You get all that by meditating on Psalm 40 and David's view of the law and his view of God and what he owed him. And Jesus comes to offer it perfectly. But of course, on the cross, the Lord does not answer Jesus' cry for salvation or deliverance from what was to come in the Gethsemane, because the Lord Jesus as our high priest would have to take the curse and the punishment and the wrath and the death that was owed to us. But then, of course, he raises him from the dead, even better than he was before. There's this quote, and, and there's this interpretation It takes us to the cross where Jesus says, it is finished. And that's what Christ came to say, isn't it? He came in his incarnation in order to be crucified so that at his crucifixion, he could say, it is finished. That's what it means. Through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. It is finished in this matter of the body and and how the author changes the word body from He gives me an ear. Well, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translated it this way and he's using it. But as it is, the whole matter of being given an ear prepared is just the entryway into the body. It was was shorthand for full obedience in a body. This author has developed that. Through the offering of the body of Jesus, once for all we could be perfected. Once for all. It is finished. What must the hearers on that day at the cross must have heard? We're reading this letter, which explains what was happening on the cross. But as the cross was unfolding, it didn't look like all of this greatness and glory and grace. It is finished. Did he say, be finished? Was it a plea? Please stop. Was it, I'm finished? Surrender, giving up? No, it was, it is finished. And what is, what is it that was finished? God's plan for the forgiveness of your sins? The tent, that whole system? The tent? Now with the torn curtains of the temple, signifying full access to God? And that temple and tent system, which was at the middle of that whole old covenant law, now a new covenant had come and the old had passed, was at that moment obsolete. And your sin was finished. The penalty for your sin was paid. And the purchase of your actual, literal, literal, moral perfection was accomplished although not fully realized just yet. What the law said, 
you are not perfect. (laughs) And the law couldn't make you without sin. But what Christ came to say, Father, I offer myself, not my will, but yours be done. And then after that, it is finished so that all of your sins could be forgiven. Now, what the Holy Spirit says today, verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. They can't take away sin. When Christ offered for all time his single sacrifice, then he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I'll make with them after those days. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds one more thing. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. The Holy Spirit also bears witness. Singular. Bears. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, remember that? Or in chapter 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place was not yet open. There is a presentness to the Holy Spirit's speech in every age, including this age, including this very day. And it's not like this ancient book speaks to us from the past today. That's true. It's that the author who inspired this book, the Holy Spirit, is actually present with us, not to give us different meanings, but to speak through the word to you, to illumine your mind and heart through its preaching, so that you might hear hear him for what he has said and receive it as good news. The Holy Spirit says. And what does he say? He says, and I'll put this personally and as an invitation. He says, come freely to the Lord. He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So friends, draw near to God on account of that. Because of Jesus, there is no guilt for sin. There is full forgiveness of sins. Not forgiveness that has to be continually repeated every Sunday or once a year. There should be no fear of death because there's no fear of judgment before a holy God because of death. For he has put the devil and death away for us. He says, I will not remember their sins and their lawless deeds anymore. All he remembers, Psalm 25 tells us, is his mercy for us. He continually remembers that. And that does not mean that the Lord has forgotten, truly. For there's not something in this universe that you know that he doesn't know or he's not God. He doesn't quarantine off certain knowledge in your mind and the minds of other people so that he's oblivious to the things that you've done. No, that's not the case. This is his way of saying so emphatically that your sins don't count against you in this relationship anymore because they have been paid for completely and his wrath has been satisfied in Jesus on the cross. That's what that means. 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And it comes there at the end of the the list of promises in Jeremiah 31 where he quotes, because it is the foundation for the rest, which you can't know or enjoy for anything apart from a clear conscience, apart from the forgiveness of sins. No nagging conscience any longer. No accusation from the devil any longer. Come, saints, freely and draw near to God without a nagging sense of guilt. Come fully to Him. Now back to 16, verse 16. One of the promises of the new covenant is that I will put, the Father says, my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. So, our Lord's purpose for us through Jesus' new covenant work and in saving us, this great salvation is not merely to take away our sins and forgive us. It is to give us a new heart. He doesn't just save us from the consequences of sin, in other words. He actually saves us so that we don't have to keep hurting ourselves and each other in sinning against God. He makes us alive to Him in the heart so that we might believe and keep believing and believe more and love Him truly, even if not completely and entirely as we will when Jesus comes. Nevertheless, there's a real obedience that we can offer. Remember, David, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but I've come to do your will. And David failed at that. And we are sinners and we'll sin too. But this is what God is after in sending Jesus. So come freely and without guilt. And come with a spirit of repentance and a resolve not to sin. Because you actually can turn from sin. You can actually grow as a husband. You can actually grow as a wife. You can actually grow to love and obey your parents, children. You can actually be a better worker at work. You can be a faithful, more happy, more thankful parent. A more diligent parent. All those things are within reach for us because of the new hearts that God has given us. And because the word is preached to us. And because God makes these commands not just true to us, but warm to us. Because he makes himself warm to us. He makes us to know how good he is and how much he loves us through the forgiveness of our sins. And he draws us into greater and greater obedience. So come freely and come fully. And if coming fully means anything, if forgiveness of our own sins is the foundation of our relationship with God and every other blessing... Isn't the forgiveness of one another the foundation for our relationship with each other? Isn't it that most appropriate thing that we ought to offer one another, brothers and sisters? Jesus knows what it is to be sinned against, so he relates with you. Jesus knows what it is to be sinned against in egregious ways, so he relates with you in that. And you can fill in the blank the way that you've been sinned against. And the forgiveness that he purchases for you empowers you to freely forgive others. What is it? Doesn't Jesus say, not seven times, but 70 times, seven we should forgive one another? I'm, I'm thinking that maybe at about two or three, I'd be saying, uh-uh, because they know what they're doing. But it's 70 times seven, which is basically means forever. 
It doesn't mean we take away the consequences for other people's sins or that there aren't consequences in our relationships for our sins. There are in every direction. But it does mean, Christian, that if you've been forgiven freely and and mean to offer yourself fully to God, the job number one is to offer one to another a full forgiveness of sins. Deep forgiveness for deep, deep, deep sins that made deep wounds and hurt you deeply. And broad forgiveness. Every kind of sin forgiven. And this is why Christian marriage is so different. Because we have a power source for this kind of incredible, almost offensive kind of act. And we can really mean it from the heart. Because we have really been forgiven from the heart. And may God help us to know just how much so that this kind of forgiveness might flow from us. True revival, we can be grateful for things that happen in other places and at other times. But true revival, if you think most biblically in terms of what the word revive means, the Holy Spirit regenerates, gives new life. He brings us to life from the dead. We were a valley of dry bones and he has put life on our bones and skin on us and flesh and he's breathed new life into us. And the thing that that new life makes possible is a new kind of love toward God and obedience toward him and love for one another. And how special it is for me and my family to be in a church where this kind of love and forgiveness is manifest all the time. Not without difficulty and not without sin, but you forgive well, you love well, you offer yourself fully to God and one another well. And I know why, because you have been invited to come freely and you have come without a nagging sense of guilt. All praise to God. Lastly, come forever. Verse 18 Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. No longer any offering for sin. You had to come and then come again next year. Well, the Lord doesn't say come again to us. He just says come and don't leave. Draw near and don't drift. Draw near and stay near. Forever we will grow in our knowledge of the Lord. Let us start and keep working in the same direction from this day forward, shall we? And what to do about sin in the meantime? Well, even from this book, we may have some answers to that. Be warned. Sin is deceitful and you may harden your heart and turn from the living God and his only way of salvation from sin. That's what sin can do to you. That's the worst. You keep hardening in your sin and refusing to forgive and refusing to turn and blame shifting and doing just what your old man Adam did in the garden. Even keep hiding from God in your shame. Keep embracing that nagging sense of guilt. Even maybe nursing yourself with the thought that feelings of guilt is a form of payment for sin. None of that will get you anywhere. There is only coming freely to God through Jesus and his high priestly work. And the only way to life change after that is then to give yourself fully to him. Knowing that you are forever his. So be warned because of sin. You could also say be comforted that Jesus is a sympathetic high priest and he understands what it is to be tempted. And you should take comfort in knowing 
that while you should turn and forgive, that Jesus knows that that is hard, though he's done it for you. But from this passage, what could we say given remaining sin? Verse 13, Jesus is sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, wait for Jesus, but I'll add, wait with Jesus. You know, he's waiting too. He doesn't like your sin, and he doesn't like sin, and he doesn't like this evil age. But there is a plan and a purpose, and he is waiting for that time which is certain, in which all his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. It's been said that before a conversion, it's impossible impossible not to sin. The great encouragement to you today, saint, is that because of Christ and the Holy Spirit's reviving, regenerating work, it is possible to not sin. And on that day when Jesus puts every, all enemies underneath his feet, it will be impossible to sin. And a final word about that day. You don't need to turn there with me, but I want you to hear something. From Psalm 110, that verse, that chapter quoted more than any other section of the Old Testament that the author of Hebrews quotes over and again. That's where verse 13 comes from. And so we take our final breath of hope and encouragement this morning from it. In verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. That's the Father speaking to the Son. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies and that they will come. And another famously quoted passage in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and won't change his mind. He keeps his word. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But then verse 3, and I have to imagine this was on his mind as well. Your people, see, this is, this is what it will look like on that day when his enemies are put under his feet. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. We will be clothed in the holy garments, the righteousness of Jesus. And on that day, we will have no temptation to sin and we will not be stopped from giving perfect worship to Jesus, the Father and the Son and the Spirit for all eternity. We will offer ourselves freely on that day of his power in holy garments. And won't that be a day of good things? The good things to come. Oh, they have come, and there is more to come still. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for the Holy Spirit who has spoken to us this morning by this word. We have been warned on some Sundays. We have been comforted on others. And on this Sunday, we are greatly encouraged to know that we can come before you and we can come to church without that nagging sense of guilt. And we're even great, grateful to know that your purpose is greater than the full forgiveness of sins, but through this relationship that we have with you, to free us from the, the pesky power of sin and its temptation so that we can forgive each other. 
that we might be forgiven, so that we might be conformed to the image of your Son who offered himself perfectly to your will. Oh, Father, he took our sin and he has given us the Holy Spirit so we have been changed and we are being changed and we give you praise for this and we give you thanks. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.